feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. That's right. Welcome back to Dab to Death. I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage. I hope you all have been well, and I hope that you enjoyed this last week's episode of Burnin' Urban, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, and stay tuned for the next installment of Burnin' Urban, The Bunny Man. It, trust me, it's a lot scarier than it sounds. Before I get into the episode, I gotta tell you guys what I'm smoking on this week. And actually, what I'm drinking on. So, of course, I have some paper planes. I have the Snow Lotus Shatter, since I didn't smoke it in last week's episode. Though I have technically smoked it before. I have some new Shatter. I have the Grape Cake Shatter. So that's coming out soon. Keep an eye out for that one. And then I have those Purple Runs... Or have that purple runs diamond sauce. I'm going to smoke on a little bit of that again. But also, this week I have decided I'm going to do something a little different. I'm featuring some cannabis-infused beverages. And my goal is to just drink as many milligrams as possible by the end of the episode. I have here uh, two cans of Heavy Hitters cannabis-infused uh seltzers basically uh one of them is a heavy mule and the other is a heavy seltzer oh i guess the other one's not a seltzer hmm but yeah these are uh, manufactured by my friends over at space station and those are uh, coming in at 25 milligrams a piece and then i have a couple of cannabis quencher uh, cannabis-infused beverages. One of them is iced tea mango lemonade. It's kind of a half-and-half half situation. And then the other is a wildberry guava agua fresca. Uh, ooh, and that one's an indica, which I love me a good indica. Now, it's weird because the iced tea mango lemonade says sip or mix. The wildberry guava agua fresca does not. Does that mean I should not sip it? Because I'm just going to drink it straight out the bottle. Uh, and anyway, each bottle is 100 milligrams each. So we'll see how far I can get into each of these. Or, or how many of these I can down. I'll keep you updated. Now, I have already tried the Heavy Hitters uh, seltzers. So I know how they taste. Um... But I'm tempted to get them out of the way first anyway, just because I know that they're a weaker uh, dosage. And I'd like to just get that out the way now, you know. So I will start with the heavy seltzer. It's got a pretty cool uh, child-resistant pop-top, you know, can pop-top kind of deal. All right, well, that is one can and 25 milligrams down. 
I feel like the only thing I'm going to regret there is all that carbonation. Anyway, all right, so started with a drink. Might as well start with a dab. And uh, I'm going to start with the grape cake shatter just because I haven't done it before and I want to give you guys something a little bit new, a little bit different this time. Because uh, like I said, the, the snow lotus and the purple runs are making a reappearance. Okay, okay. Um, well, the first thing I notice about this shatter, the grape cake shatter, um, you're not hit with your normal very trimmy shatter smell, you know, but, uh, you know, that's, that's always really, really good thing to look for with shatter. Cause I mean, I understand it's shatter. It's going to taste like trim or smell like trim 99% of the time. But every once in a while you find a good shatter that smells nice, looks nice, tastes really nice. You get, you get lucky every once in a while, you know? And I think, uh, the snow Lotus was definitely one of those ones where it was just like, Phenomenal shatter. think this grape cake tastes particularly trimmy either which is actually really nice um i'll have to figure out who it was cultivated by actually it might be preferred gardens oh sorry about that that is heavy hitters drink number two this is the heavy mule again 25 milligrams thc uh the strain is acapulco gold by the way same for the other one, actually. So, welcome to the second edition of the Cutthroat Kids, where we take a look at some of the most killer kids in history. In this week's episode, I will be talking about some of the deadly duos that have developed among these demented delinquents. While the debate between nature versus nurture, as it pertains to people who kill, is already one with no clear answer, this is especially true when it comes to children who kill. As we discussed in the last rendition of Cutthroat Kids, there were some kids who fit the typical mold of what you would expect out of a murderer or serial killer. Yet there were others who seemed completely normal all the way up until the moment that they snapped. While statistically most serial killers, or especially violent murderers, share a history of physical, psychological, or sexual abuse during their childhoods, this is definitely not always the case. With these first two killers, however, it would seem that abuse played a major role in their development. In typical fashion, this wouldn't be apparent when their crimes first took place, and the two girls were portrayed as reckless monsters with no regard for human life. Is this sounding at all familiar after the whole Eileen Warnos episode to anyone? Or just me? 
Our first deadly duo comes to us from Placer County, California, not too far from Dab and Stab Studios here in Sacramento. They are 14-year-old Shirley Wolf and 15-year-old Cindy Collier, who killed an 85-year-old woman and then said that it was fun. It was the summer of 1983, and the two girls met on June 14th while in a juvenile institution. Now, it wasn't really clear if this was like a juvenile hall or a group home or a foster home. I read several different versions, so I just said juvenile institution. Okay? The two instantly bonded over their terrible childhoods and began to plan to run away and live their lives together. They escaped from the facility and Cindy decided that if they were going to get out of town and have a chance at a life together, then they needed a car and that she knew just where to find one. They went from door to door at an apartment complex in Auburn, California, hoping that someone would let them inside so they could attack them and steal their car. Most of the people who came across the two girls were either smart enough or fortunate enough to decide not to let them in. However, 86-year-old Anna Brackett was such a kind soul that when she heard the two girls asking to use her phone, she was only more than willing to help them. It would be the last kind thing that she would ever do. Once inside, the two girls attacked. Shirley grabbed Anna by the throat and threw her to the ground. Cindy went into the kitchen and grabbed a knife, and they went on to stab poor Anna Brackett at least 28 times. It was hard to tell the exact number of stab wounds because the knife had re-entered some of the wounds multiple times. Afterwards, they searched the house, taking whatever money they could find, and what they thought were the keys to Anna's car. As luck would have it, the keys would not start the car, so they began to walk and try to hitchhike away from the crime scene. Ironically enough, Anna's son was on his way to her condominium and actually passed the two young girls, even commenting on how if they were hitchhiking at that age, they were in either incredibly stupid or incredibly tough. Of course, once he arrived, he discovered the body of his mother and called the police. The two teen killers returned to Cindy's home, and that night, Shirley would write in her diary, Cindy and I ran away and killed an old lady today. It was lots of fun. Several witnesses came forward and offered descriptions of the two girls, who had been seen knocking on doors in the complex. Some of the residents even recognized Cindy from when she lived in the complex with her grandparents for a brief time. That's kind of fucking stupid. Why would you go somewhere where people know you to kill someone? That's just like... <sighs> incredibly dumb. But I mean, they're teenagers. What the hell do they know? The police were hesitant to follow up on the lead, thinking that there was no way that two young girls would do something like this. I mean, it's generally not the first thing you assume. You know, find an old woman brutally stabbed to death. You don't think, yeah, 14 and a 15-year-old girl. That's, that's who did that. Anyway, I think I'm going to crack open this iced tea mango lemonade. 
because I mean, I only got one episode to get through as much of this as possible. Ooh, okay, okay. So the way these things are supposed to be dosed out is one capful is two milligrams of THC, which should make 50 drinks because it's a 100 milligram bottle. I'm just going to chug it straight out the bottle. So there's that. <clears throat> Definitely would probably taste better in something else. But we'll run with it. I'm already a little over 10 milligrams down. <clears throat> so, despite this disbelief, police did follow up and question both Cindy and Shirley. Shirley folded like a cheap suit and confessed to the murder almost instantly, and the two girls were arrested. They are both tried as juveniles in a non-jury trial, and the judge finds them both guilty of first-degree murder and sentences them to eight years in a juvenile prison. Now, for most people, that is all of the story that they need to know. It seems pretty cut and dry to them. Two troubled teens committed a violent and shocking murder simply for fun. What more did they need to know? Well, how about the why of it all? Like, what drives two young girls to brutally stab an old woman to death like that? Both Cindy and Shirley were victims of physical and sexual abuse from very young ages and were filled with an anger towards the world. That is actually what bonded these two to each other so quickly and so strongly. Cindy Collier was only one when her father walked out on their family and said that by the time she was seven years old, she had been beaten and raped by her stepbrother, as well as by men that her mother had brought home. Not surprisingly, by the time Cindy reached high school, she was known to have, quote, behavioral problems, and had even started to get a criminal record for crimes like petty theft and assault. Shirley Wolfe was also born into a rather shitty life, Born in Brooklyn to a family of violent alcoholics, she began to be abused by her father before she was even in kindergarten. After moving to California in 1978, Shirley was sexually abused by her father at the age of nine. Her father denied the abuse, but would later plead no contest to a child molestation charge and serve 100 days in jail. To make the situation even more fucked up, when her father was released, Shirley was forced into foster and group homes since her father was now a sex offender and part of his parole barred him from being around his daughter. That's right, rather than make the man who sexually assaulted his own daughter fuck off and live somewhere else, they take young Shirley and force her into the foster system. That is when she meets Cindy, and we all know how the story goes from there. And I think I'm going to take a dab break. Also an update, I am about 40 milligrams down on that cannabis quencher now. And, uh, alrighty, so I think I'm going to do the purple runts diamond sauce. Because I'm feeling a little saucy.
I think I'm primarily just tasting the uh, mango tea lemonade stuff over here every time I exhale, so. Fifty milligrams down. Woo! So that makes it a uh, hundred now. Total running total. All right, back to it. Our next pair of prepubescent psychopaths hail from across the pond in Liverpool, England. On February twelfth, nineteen ninety-three, two ten-year-old boys named Robert Thompson and John Venables abducted and murdered two-year-old James Patrick Bolger. Denise Bolger was shopping at the New Strand Shopping Center with her two-year-old son James on the afternoon of February 12th. It seemed like a day just like any other, but what Denise didn't know was that death was lurking around that shopping center in the form of two young boys. John Venables and Robert Thompson were ditching school, much like they always did, and were cruising around the shopping center in Bootle looking for a target. Boodle. It literally says Boodle. I'm not I'm not joking, it says Boodle. You can look it up. Anyway. All it took was for his mother to turn around to pay for her purchase at the butcher shop, briefly taking her eyes off of her son. And within seconds, little James Bolger had vanished. What Denise did not see, but what was picked up on CCTV in the area was Robert and John walking up and simply luring young James away. One of the boys would later reveal that their plan that day was to abduct a child and push them into traffic. For whatever reason, though, their plan changed, and instead of pushing James into the street, they went on a 2.5-mile walk through Liverpool with him. Shortly after leaving the shopping center with him, the two boys dropped James, injuring his face. They briefly joked about throwing him into the canal, but instead they continued on their way, being spotted by several witnesses as they walked. Anyone who attempted to stop the group of children and inquire if everything was alright were simply met with lies. They would explain that James was their younger brother, or that he was lost and they were doing the right thing and taking him to a police station. They weren't being completely dishonest, as they did eventually end up across the street from the Walton Lane police station. Only instead of heading inside to report the lost child, they turned and headed up a steep embankment towards the railways near an old train station. Walton and Anfield station had shut down in May of 1948, however, so there wasn't anyone around to see what happened next. Once they reached the tracks, John and Robert began to savagely assault poor little James. First, one of the boys threw some blue paint that they had stolen from the shopping center earlier in his face, getting it into his left eye. After nearly blinding him, they began to beat, kick, and stomp on him, in addition to bombarding him with bricks and stones. They also placed batteries into his mouth and then dropped a 22-pound railway fish plate onto his head. 
Uh, I had to look this up. A fish plate is apparently a metal bar that is bolted to the two ends of, uh, of rails to join them together. So, fun fact. When they were finally done, they dragged James's body over to the tracks and covered him with some debris in hopes that a train would hit him and make his death seem like an accident. Like, who the hell thinks like that at 10 years old? Seriously. Like, who? I mean, I guess these kids, but... Maybe some of these guys behind me over here on the tapestry, too, so... James Bulger's body was found two days later by a group of kids who were playing near the tracks. His body had been severed in half after being run over by a train, and upon examining the body, pathologist Alan Williams could not identify the cause of death due to the number of injuries that he had sustained. There were 42 injuries in total. They were able to determine, however, that James Bulger had succumbed to his injuries and had died before being bisected by a passing train. Bonus points if you remember which episode that fancy word comes from. Bisected. The pathologist's report was a disturbing one to get through, but was read aloud in court. It listed all 42 of the brutal injuries that were inflicted upon James, including what seemed to be indicators of sexual abuse. Warning, this next shit is gnarly. The report revealed that after being stripped of his pants and underwear, James sustained several injuries below his waist. They believed that the boys had even inserted some of the batteries into his anus at some point, and his foreskin had been forcibly pulled back. <sighs> like I said, it gets rougher. It, it's pretty much as rough as it gets, but yeah, it got rough. Both John and Robert would refuse to acknowledge any form of sexual abuse that may have taken place, even after their incarceration when they were interviewed by child psychologist Eileen Vizard. It was not long before the police figured out that it was John Venables and Robert Thompson who were the culprits behind this malicious attack. I'm kind of guessing that the security camera footage of the abduction and the dozens of witnesses who saw the boys together probably helped. Everyone was shocked by the young age of the two killers, including the police. When they had first heard witnesses' descriptions of the two youths, seen with little James Bulger, they assumed that they were teenagers, not ten-year-old boys. I'm realizing this is a catch-22 because the more of this I drink, the worse the cotton mouth's also going to get. But I'm drinking it to help with the cotton mouth. Vicious cycle. That's what I was looking for, not catch-22. Anywho. The boys were charged with the murder of James Bulger on February 20th, 1993, and were found guilty on November 24th making them the youngest people to be convicted of murder in the 20th century. Upon sentencing, the judge said that the two boys had committed a crime that was, quote, of unparalleled evil and barbarity. 
They were sentenced to a minimum of eight years and were released in 2001 after it was decided that they were no longer a threat and were given new identities for their protection on the condition that they never reoffended. While Robert Thompson would follow this requirement and has gone on to live a quiet life with his partner, John Venables would go on to be arrested for the possession of child pornography later in his life. Alright, I think after that one, I need a damn dab. I think this time I'm going to go with the one I can't shut the fuck up about, the Snow Lotus Shatter. Here we go. a dab. Alright. While there weren't really any warning signs of the violence that was to come from young John Venables and Robert Thompson, that is definitely not the case with our next death-dealing duo. Well, technically I'm bending the rules here a little bit because up next we actually have a trio of Nazi teenage terrors. Two years after the murder of James Bolger, brothers Brian and David Freeman, along with their cousin, Nelson Ben Birdwell III, ages 17, 16, and 18 respectively, murdered their parents, Brenda and Dennis, an 11-year-old brother, Eric. Brian and David were raised in a very strict Jehovah's Witness household, and in the few years leading up to the murders, had become more involved in skinhead groups and adopted the beliefs of neo-Nazis over that of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Freeman family lived in the small Salisbury township in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, and pretty much kept to themselves, as devoutly religious families often do, especially if the neighboring families are not of the same religion. As Brian and David grew older within this isolated and authoritarian lifestyle, they began to resent their parents for the fact that they were social outcasts and picked on in school. While this was mostly due to them being separated from the rest of the community, it was definitely not helped at all by the fact that both boys were fairly large and somewhat intimidating in appearance from a relatively young age. By the time they were teenagers, both Brian and David were over six feet tall, 
and over 200 pounds each. Go Google a picture real quick. I'll wait. Yeah, they were some scary looking dudes. The trouble with the two brothers began at the ages of 12 and 13 when they began drinking and experimenting with drugs as an act of rebellion against their parents, who ended up sending them to a rehab two years later in 1993. It is while they were in this rehab facility that they reportedly met their first connection to the world of neo-Nazi and skinhead ideology, and Brian was instantly drawn to the structure and the power that he felt becoming a part of this group would bring him. He was able to pretty easily influence his younger brother David to think just like him, and uh, then soon after the cousin, you know, so... Tensions escalated in the family, especially between the boys and their father. The police would end up being called out to the Freeman residence five times between 1993 and 1995, when they would be called out there for the final time. By this time, Brian had become the leader of his own little skinhead group that was really just him, his brother David, and their 18-year-old cousin Ben and all three of them had donned the stereotypical neo-Nazi uniform, Doc Martens, camouflage pants, swastika tattoos, and shaved heads. At one point, they even got um, words tattooed on their foreheads. I believe Ben and Brian got the word Berserker tattooed across their forehead, which is actually the name of a, a band. And then David got the words Sieg Heil, tattooed across his forehead and David was like the biggest of all of them he was like six foot three six four something like that and he was like 230 pounds 240 pounds like he was a big dude and like big old bushy red beard like shaved head tattooed scary looking motherfucker you know oh yeah their goal was to intimidate people and I would say they definitely succeeded in that goal Students and faculty from their high school were increasingly terrified of the boys. At one point, they were, uh, they even locked down the campus because I believe they had threatened to kill the principal. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, th these, these guys were no joke. It's a shame that they're bringing a bad name to Doc Martens, too, because those are really good boots. Anyway, their family had also become scared, especially their younger brother Eric, who they saw as the favored child, and they hated him for it. On February 26, 1995, the time bomb that had been ticking in this quiet Pennsylvania neighborhood detonated, leaving the town in shock and fear. Brian, David, and Ben returned to the Freeman home that night after a trip to the movies and an argument quickly ensued between the boys and their mother, Brenda. The teens had returned home past their 11 p.m. curfew, and Brenda did not want their cousin in the house. So Ben pretends to leave, but then returns once she goes back upstairs to bed, and the three head down to the basement. Brenda eventually comes back downstairs to confront them again, and Brian gets up in her face, refusing to back down. Suddenly, as they are arguing, he grabs her and shoves a pair of shorts into her mouth and stabs her in the stomach with a knife from the kitchen. 
Things had officially crossed the line, and there was no turning back. Brian sent David and Ben upstairs to take care of Dennis and Eric as he continued to stab his mother to death. Ben and David entered the parents' bedroom, where the father was sleeping soundly in the bed, unfazed by the commotion two floors below, where Brian was now bashing his mother's body with a bar from their weight set. They walked up to the bed, raising the metal bar and aluminum baseball bat they had brought into the room with them over the sleeping body of Dennis Freeman, and then beat him to death. Lastly, their younger brother Eric, who was only 11 years old at the time, was also asleep in his bed when one of the killers beat him to death with the wooden handle of a pickaxe. We will never know who it was that actually carried out this murder, as all three of the boys maintained their silence on which of them did it. At least until years later, when David would say that it was their cousin Ben, though he still denies it was him. Once all three of the non-Nazi members of the Freeman family had been killed, Brian, David, and Ben fled the scene of the crime, taking their mother's 1988 Pontiac and a 12-gauge shotgun with them. The day after the murders, the bodies of Brenda, Dennis, and Eric Freeman were discovered by Brenda's sister Valerie, and a warrant was soon issued for the arrest of the two older Freeman boys and their cousin Ben. The Allentown coroner said that this was one of the most brutal murders they had seen. Both Dennis and Eric had been beaten so severely that their bodies were almost unrecognizable. What's strange to me is that these murders occurred in an oddly violent period of time in Lehigh County. In the five-month span between January and May of 1995, there were 14 homicides within county limits. Sounds to me like there was something in the water or some shit. Like seriously, what the fuck? The trio of goose-stepping juvenile jackasses decided to head towards Hope, Michigan to the home of a fellow skinhead they had met at a concert named Frank Hess. Luckily, the police were already aware of the connection with Hess, and all four were arrested at his home without incident just three days after the murders took place. Initially, the boys maintained their stubborn silence and cool composure, refusing to say anything about who did what. That is, until they found out that their cousin Ben was backing out and trying to say that he had nothing to do with the actual murders. After that, the floodgates were thrown open and out poured the details of what occurred on that night. You could almost say that the Freeman brothers and Nelson Ben Birdwell sang like, well, birds. Sorry. The trial for Brian and David was a short one as they both entered guilty pleas on March 6th and were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Both of the brothers have since been granted resentencing hearings based on the 2016 Supreme Court ruling regarding the life sentences for juveniles who were tried as adults. But these hearings, as of this point in time, are still on hold. Nelson Ben Birdwell III went on trial in April and was convicted of murdering Dennis Freeman. Blood on his shirt placed him in the room when Dennis was murdered, but he would be acquitted of the other two murders. 
In fact, one of the saddest aspects of this story is that no one would end up being convicted of the murder of 11-year-old Eric Foreman. I mean, Freeman. Dumbass! Ben Birdwell would also receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole. But unlike Brian and David, Ben was 18 at the time of the murders, so the Supreme Court ruling has no bearing on his case. Over 20 years after the murders, both Brian and David Freeman have expressed the remorse that they feel now for what they have done. In 2017, Brian gave an interview with WMFZ, a Lehigh County news station, in which he said, quote, Even after 20 years, it still haunts me, and haunts a lot of people. He then acknowledges that he feels he deserves to be in prison by saying, quote, I did a terrible thing, and I absolutely deserve to be punished. Ah, <sighs> that was a lot. Like, these kids are fucked up, man. I'm almost done with this bottle. I'm just gonna, just gonna finish this real quick, and then. Looks like I'll only get through 150 milligrams. I won't get to the uh, the last bottle. Because, well, this concludes the second entry in our Cutthroat Kids collection. And I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't have wanted to meet any of these kids in a dark alley when I was younger. While we may never know exactly why it is that these kids kill, there are two things that you can count on. The first thing is that these kids will continue to kill. And the second is that I will be here to tell their tales when they do, passing along the stories of these cutthroat kids. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback on this week's episode or have any topics you'd really like me to talk about, you can send it in to feedback at dabtodeath.com or you can message me on any of the social medias at dabtodeath. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at Dab to Death Podcast. Stay tuned next week where I talk about serial killer Robert Hansen, known as the Butcher Baker, who hunted women down in a deadly game in the woods of Alaska. And also tune in Sunday for the next installment of Burn and Urban, The Bunny Man. Until then... Be careful out there. You never know when you may get dabbed to death.